Would you read along with me, please? Observe the month of Aviv. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God. In the flock, in the herd, in the place where the Lord chooses to put His name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. You came out of the land of Egypt in haste. But you remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt, excuse me, all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in your territory for seven days. Nor shall any of the meat in which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight. At the going down of the sun, the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place in which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. We're only going to cover this first of three feasts today. More than likely, we'll cover the remainder of the chapter next week. But go to the Lord with me in prayer, if you would, please. Please, Lord, open our hearts to you today. Take us beyond ritual and routine to that place, Lord, where we are all yours. That there be no segment, no portion kept from you, no resistance to your will, no fighting the things that you desire of us but out of faith, trusting that you would draw us in. And for everything handed over, a better thing will be given. On this quiet 1st of March, 2015, manifest now. May we be captivated in your word, drawn in, just drawn in. Please, Lord. And make this eternally changing for us. Please, Lord, have your way. I commit, Lord, our fellowship, this study, all that you have. All that we are, we commit to you now and we pray you commandeer our attention. We would have so much fun in your word that God speak to each one of us, cut to our heart of hearts, individually bespoke now, Lord, that which you intend for each of us. And have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. 
Let the Bible be your authority. Our context of the previous chapters has been treating family as family. Forgiving debts, that which is lent, that seventh year. Giving to the needy. And don't forget, Dad, that perfect sacrifice that we bring. Now, we recognize that the book of Deuteronomy is a lot of reiteration. God has taught us primarily in, if you will, He's taught us everything in pretext or precept through to prepare us for Deuteronomy. And then God, like a great Hebrew teacher, then takes these things, these elements that we have grown to know from the first four chapters, and then brings them together, not always chronologically, though there are points for that, but thematically, so that in essence, we sort of have learned the precept, the pretext, and now we're actually getting the principle. So he starts pulling these things together. For instance, in this chapter, we will have those three feasts. But then he adds an issue of jurisprudence from verses 18 to 22. Uh, An interesting thing to sort of add, and putting it right after this issue of making sure that you don't forget to be with God. He has told us now that we need to schedule, if you will, dad times. There is an eternal significance to everything that he says here. But understand, he tells us if we do not schedule it, It won't happen. And he knows that. And as a result of that, there are things that are too important to have sort of a get-around-to-it mindset to it. And when it comes to intimacy, God knows that if you don't book it, it ain't going to happen. And we say, well, you know, and you, you know how this is. It's the couple that always dreamed of going somewhere but never winds up going anywhere because they just never got around to it. It's the, I will develop a good quiet time. I just need to get everything else worked out. And the next thing you know, God's the thing that winds up sort of getting the the, the dust at the end of the day at best. And understand, he's always told us first fruits belong to him. The idea is that we set apart stuff for him first. Then we go to handling the rest of our day. He tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I'll also be added. All those things that he talked about that people worry about, from where they're going to live to what they're going to eat to what they're going to wear. He says, stop worrying about that stuff. You're straining gnats but swallowing camels. Interesting, in this point of it all, God has brought us on the first day of the month, which is, of course, for us, dedicated to communion, to the communion table to illustrate through the place where communion was introduced in the Passover. Meticulous as God is to detail, what we will see in these eight verses, though the attention will be, of course, on the Passover, Pesach, verses 1 through 8. Seven times the Lord will be mentioned by name. Of the seven, six of those times it will say, The Lord your God. Because it's more than just God in the sky, something you can put in your pocket, something that somehow you feel you can make the rules. The point is, even with all seven of them, we must recognize the Lord means He is the right to call the shots, to reinvent, to set the boundaries, to do with our life the way that we should, the way that He wants. But He's not just the Lord. He's the Lord, my God. And that is the important part to this. Because because He is the Lord my God, I make claim to Him. And that's the whole point. It isn't just go because I'm being obedient, though that would be enough. What He's going to make clear is 
that this is to be to Him. Church is to be to Him. Not the place to find a mate. Not the place to to make sure that others can see your prowess. Not the place, first and foremost, this is His house and it needs to be given to Him. He says, I want these feasts. I want you to schedule them. So before you try to get busy with life and you wake up one day and years have passed without us being intimate in any way, don't forget me. Passover, 1 through 8. Shiva'ot, Pentecost, verses 9 through 12. Sukkot, that of the tabernacles, 13 through 17. And then he adds at the end the importance of a jurisprudence, 18 through 22. All of which will make sense when we talk about the pretext or the, the principle of it all next week. But here, understand, there's another aspect to this. And that is not only seven times is the Lord mentioned by name, but also there are seven key requirements to this Passover. There are stringencies that are required of us, which are all, by the way, prophetic in nature. Even as Jesus is quoted from originally from Psalms, then reiterated in Hebrews 10, verse 7, when it says, Behold, I come in the volume of the book, Jesus says in in John 5. You search the Scriptures, thinking by them that you possess eternal life, but they are which testify of me. And understand the point of it is, is that I look at every verse and I look for Jesus in it. These are going to be very easy. So as we go through eight verses, we will find seven very clear points to make. And then we'll go to the greatest Passover that ever existed 2,000 years ago where Jesus taught us why we do this thing with the bread and the cup. Well, look at it with me. Chapter 16, verse 1 starts with this. Observe the month of Aviv. Stop. Before we go any farther. Aviv, by the way, we don't normally use that. We, don't, we use now, of course, a Julian calendar. Aviv is a Hebrew a portion of it. It's the Hebrew calendar. It is the time between March and April. And thus, by the way, the Passover actually begins the Friday this time around, right before Easter. But the term, I think, is what's so profound. Because he could have picked anything for it. But Aviv means tender. And I get it because it's that time, by the way, when the the corn becomes tender. (laughs) It's the time when those first fruits become tender enough to pick. And I think that's interesting that the whole idea of it is with the tenderness comes a harvest. With the tenderness comes the opportunity for harvest. And I really like that. I can't help but think of Psalm 95, verse 8, where he says, Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. My question to you is, is your heart tender today? Are we in a season of tenderness? And the other side of that, it tells us, by the way, in Proverbs, that a brother offended is harder to win than a walled city. And what's more amazing is, people could be really offended over things that never happened. I watched that happen a lot. Well, I think they thought, they meant, I saw the text, and I know this is the way they said it. It was, well, you didn't do, or you did do, or what could have been, or maybe. And it's amazing how quickly people could become offended. And you know what that does is it destroys your tenderness. And you can get that way about God very easy. Because the enemy is the accuser. And because he's the accuser, every accusation 
lines itself up for the purpose of hardening your heart. That same verse, by the way, from, he, from Psalm 95 gets spoken twice, Hebrews 3.15 and 4.7. But what's interesting is right before 3.15 and 3.13, he says, be really, really careful that your hearts not, or that you be not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God knows that sin lies. And when you start biting into it, it hardens your heart. God wants us tender. Perhaps the most profound way that He says that is that He wants to circumcise our heart. The idea is quite simple. He wants that which is most tender to be available to us. And I ask, before we even go any farther, where are you at today? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Is there something that has walled up your heart in such a way that no matter what God does, it'll bounce off because it's just walled now? Because if that's the case, the rest of this will mean nothing to you. So I want to pray. I want to pray again right now for true tenderness. Because if we're going to have a feast to the Lord here, not to men, but to the Lord, our hearts must be soft to Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for whatever, if any, and I I know of none, but if there has been any entertaining of accusations from the enemy, any deceitfulness of sin that has crept into our lives that has somehow hardened us, any pain from disappointment, hurt from others, that has hardened us. You tell us not to harden our hearts like in the time of the rebellion. Not the time of pain or suffering, but the time of rebellion. I pray that you would re-soften our hearts. Tenderize us, God. Because if we're going to go through this, I don't want to go through this in the head. I'm going to go through this in the heart. So would you please lead us now? you please even right now before we move forward tear down whatever walls re-cut open our hearts to leave that which is most tender exposed to us please in Jesus name Amen in verse 2 it tells you should sacrifice the Passover to the Lord this, of course, is why John makes mention three different times in the Gospel of John 5, 1, 6, 4, and 7, 2, that it was a feast of the Jews. Because by the time that Jesus was walking on earth, the very feast that God said was to be the feast to him had now become a feast of men. And I get this. We used to have this event called Someone's Coming to Dinner. Or guess who's coming to dinner. 
because there had been all of a sudden this tsunami of university students that started showing up and we didn't want them to become their own universe. We wanted them to engage with other people. And so what we did is we encouraged those who were older to cook dinner and invite them, several uh, students, to their house. And we did it by sort of a lottery so that the students didn't know they were go- where they were going. They kind of they knew the address. They just didn't know to whom they were showing up. We did. Which, because if, if they learned that they were coming to the pastor's house, most of them probably would have played dead. So, so with all of that said, you know, we, we would do that. And I remember you'd invite them and people would come and you'd be able to engage. And some of those people we saw raised up in the ministry, they, were re- they became really close, personal, very, very beloved people. But I remember one particular batch, they all sort of knew each other ahead of time, and that was our first thing. And when they came, they came and they sort of sat and discussed and talked among each other about all kinds of things. But we sort of sat around the table, and I remember our, our oldest was really young, but she was trying so hard to engage them. And it was really painful to watch her be so innocent and so kind in the throats. And, and they kind of had gotten so there that I w- we were sort of sitting there. And we, in other words, the only reason they kind of showed up at, the, at that point was for food. I mean, we tried to engage them and we tried to engage them, but they stayed kind of within themselves. And I understand how that can happen when you're uncomfortable, but you try and you try and you try. And I just, I remember thinking of this issue that God says here, where it was the Feast of the Jews. I remember, they go to the temple and it's God's house. And imagine you're going to the temple, it's God's house, and everyone's sort of talking among themselves, but they're not engaging the guy whose house it is. God says that should never be the case. And you know, we can do that here. We can come here for all of the other reasons and we can do our thing and walk out and have no contact with the person to whose house this should be. But again, that won't mean anything to me unless my heart be tender first. And that is our context for our seven requirements. It's got to be at the time of tenderness and it's got to be to him. And here we go. Now we get to our requirements. Verse 2, it says, from the flock and the herd. That's the first of his requirements here, is that it cannot be, you cannot sacrifice a zebra. You can't offer your dog or your guinea pig, whatever the case would be. It's got to be a lamb. It's got to be from the flock and herd. And I recognize this is something that God had set us on a chase all the way back in Genesis 22:8, when Abraham walking with his son up the mountain and his son looks and says, Dad, I see the, the fire and I see the wood, but where is the sacrifice? Abraham had said, we're going to go up and worship. And, and somehow I get the idea that the son's kind of, a, he's intuitive enough to recognize that that worship isn't worship without sacrifice. And all the wood and all the fire you could try to call down and people can yell and hoot and scream and bark and, and speak in a language they've never heard and roll and foam and shake. And if all of that happens but there's no sacrifice, God's not calling a worship. Now the father has this horrible secret in his heart and that is that his son is on the, the agenda for the sacrifice. And he turns respond to his son please know that in Mesopotamia every culture had a God of pleasure and every God of pleasure required 
the firstborn sacrifice. When God throws this, I want you to offer your son, it is not because what God really just wants to do is torture Abraham. Abraham will build four altars. And in every culture, there were, in essence, four simple God categories, if you will. Gods of production, gods of protection, gods of provision, and gods of pleasure. And Joshua makes very clear that Abraham came from an idol-worshiping household. This will be Abraham's fourth altar. And the journey that Abraham is on in it will be the same journey that we are on. The journey of discovering that God really is everything you need. And the hardest of those, I genuinely believe, is that of pleasure. We can kind of get the idea that God should provide for us or protect us, give us purpose, make us fruitful. But I would almost dare to say that the majority of what's called the Christian church by practice and lifestyle teaches that the Jesus is for saving, but the world is for falling. So when he is there with this on his heart, Abraham, he is discovering that this God is the God of pleasure too. And his response is this in verse 8, My son, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, the olah, the surrender. The word for lamb is the word seh. We know that once they go up there, God stops them because the issue is that it will not be the sacrifice of man, but of God. And it says that he sees an ayil in the thicket, not a seh. We read it as a ram. A ram in the thicket as a sacrifice. But the problem is Abraham's response is God will provide himself to be the seh. And you go, oh, what's the difference? Ram, lamb, aren't they kind of basically the same thing? They're kind of fluffy and they both make roughly the same noise, maybe a little deeper. What did Abraham think? When the sacrifice was over, Abraham named the place. You're familiar, right? Some would say Jehovah Jireh. Do you know what that means? God will provide. Not God has provided. If Abraham actually said ram, lamb must be the same thing, he would have called the place God has provided. But it's not what it's called. It's called God will provide. Abraham himself looked to a lamb. So then I'm on a quest, like a good Jewish boy, to go and find the lamb. God will provide himself to be one. Where is he? The next time a lamb shows up, the next time I see the word Seth, is in Exodus chapter 12, where that lamb has to become your lamb and be sacrificed, where his blood's on the door so you escape from the land of bondage. That's Exodus 12. The next time after that, Exodus 34, where that lamb has the power to redeem. The next time is in Leviticus 3, where that lamb becomes the sacrifice for your sins. And then I get to Isaiah 53, and it gets even more profoundly interesting as it says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Quoted, by the way, in Acts 8.32 about Jesus. 
But then they get to Jeremiah 11:19, and it says, I, God speaking, was led like a docile lamb to the slaughter. And I get why then John would say in John 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because I've been looking for the Lamb. And John says, you've been looking for the Lamb? There He is. But that Lamb has to be God. Yep. You're on to it now. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, did he believe that that was the case? We read that Jesus was our sacrifice. 1 Peter 1.19, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our perfect sacrifice. By Revelation chapter 5, when John is brought up, another of Jesus' twelve, and stands before eternity, heaven itself, it tells us, I look, I behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Revelation 5, 6. The elders saw the lion of the tribe of Judah, but John as a human saw the lamb. In Revelation 22, at the end of the whole book, we're in the last chapter of the book. It says in verse 3, there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servant shall serve Him. And God says, in this sacrifice, the focus is the Lamb of God, and that Lamb is Jesus. It tells us next, in the place, notice in verse 2 as well, in the place where the Lord chooses to put His name. God could have chosen any place to put His name. But in 1 Kings 11.36 it tells us, In Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. 2, Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 21.4 tells us, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In 2 Kings 21.7, three verses later, it says, In Jerusalem I will put my name there forever. In 1 Kings 9.3 it says, My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. You wonder why Jewish men go to a wall that was a... It wasn't even a wall of the temple. It was a retaining wall. Because they believe that God's eyes and... It tells us here that God's eyes, His heart will be there forever. So they will assume that's the case. That God's still looking. And I get why then, when Jesus is brought as an infant, there is a woman. Perhaps you remember the story. Her name is Anna. And she sees the baby and blesses it. It tells us in verse 28 of chapter 2 of Luke. Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption of in Israel. They knew that that's where the redemption had to take place. When Jesus has his board meeting up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses, who better as the representatives of the law and the prophets than Moses and Elijah? In Luke 9:31, it says, Jesus, when they appeared, they spoke of his decease in which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. When Jesus pulls his disciples aside, he is walking through Caesarea Philippi and he asks, who do men say that I am? Interesting, their response is very much like those God categories. Jesus, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, way to go. You've heard from God. And then Jesus begins to tell them, you can't have the, the Messiah without his mission. 
says, from that time, this is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Many of you are familiar. Peter tries to pull him aside and starts to rebuke him as if Peter's saying, don't worry, Jesus, you got me. It's always comforting for God, I'm sure, to tell him that we will take care of him. In Luke 13:33, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus knew where he was going to die. It had to be. For the Passover to be fulfilled, death had to happen in Jerusalem. But there will be more specifically in a moment. Verse 3, it says, You shall eat no leavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And with it, notice he gives us the title. Do you see it there in verse 3? The bread of what? The bread of what? Affliction. Lamechani. The bread of affliction. Because you came out of Egypt quickly, with haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. No leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. Our third requirement, the first is must be a lamb. The second must be in Jerusalem. The third, no leaven. And I get that. Exodus 12:15 is where they pull from. You don't have time to wait for that thing to rise. Get it out. Hosea 7 pulls us there. It gets to the point, that's called chemesh, by the way, the, the, the leaven. Leaven decays, and that's what makes it bigger. Oh, it looks like you get more, but you really don't get more. It's actually air. I mean, that's why, for instance, when you get like the gluten-free stuff or whatever, it's like the same amount of mass. One thing's like the size of your head and the other thing's the size of your nail. They weigh the same because the air is gone. But what is that to us? You get to the point where it tells us you have to drive out that leaven. To this day, in a traditional Jewish home, you take a feather and you push it out and you scour the house. Any leaven in your house whatsoever disqualifies you from being able to have your Passover. If you're going to have a proper Passover, you have to drive the leaven out. And I understand why. In John chapter 2, Jesus drives out the moneylenders. Because what he was doing is he was driving out the leaven from his house. There's the point. But listen what Jesus says about leaven. In Luke 12, 1, it says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In Matthew 16, 12, he says, Did I not, when he told them about being aware of this, he says, He didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine as well of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that false doctrine of greed and avarice. In 1 Corinthians 5, 8, he says, Let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, but with the, which is the leaven, by the way, of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This must be done without hypocrisy, without false doctrine, without malice, without wickedness. Leaven becomes a symbol, an icon for sin. And I understand why then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Do you realize the pressure that was on Jesus? All Jesus had to do was sin once and he could no longer qualify to be our sacrifice. Could you imagine that pressure? Imagine if I told, and I'll just pick on Juan again. Hi, Juan. 
But I say, Juan, you've got an hour. In that hour, don't think a bad thought. Don't do a bad thing. Don't intend a bad thing. Because if you do, someone will die somewhere. You might want to say goodbye. Anyways, and not just one. It's all of us. The point is, only God has the power to do that. Here's the good news. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, that same God lives inside of you and will manifest and give you the ability to say no. Not to Him, but to sin. So, got to be a lamb. Got to be in Jerusalem. Got to be sinless. We're almost halfway there. It tells us then at the end of verse 4, Not shall any of the, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice on the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. It cannot remain out. Do you realize if Jesus was crucified on any other day, this could not be fulfilled? If Jesus were crucified on a Monday, they would not take him down. If Jesus were crucified on a Wednesday, they would not take him down. The reason is in John 19, verse 31. It says, because it was the preparation day, the body should not remain on the, on, on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs should be broken, that they might be taken away. Taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who were crucified with Jesus, but they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Which was important because there's a prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. So imagine he's crucified at noon, but he has to be taken down before the nighttime and actually put away, which is exactly the situation. Jesus dies on the day before Sabbath, so that he wouldn't remain on the cross overnight. That is God's meticulous detail. Verse 5 tells us then our fifth one. So, must be a lamb. Must be in Jerusalem. That's where we started this. Must be sinless. Must not remain overnight. Verse 5. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but in the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Wait a minute. But I thought it was Jerusalem. It is, but it can't be in Jerusalem. It has to be right outside the gates of Jerusalem. I remind you, when this is being written was 1,400 years before Jesus would set foot on earth as we know him. It would also be at least 800, if not more, Years before crucifixion was invented. Everything else you did other than stoning, you dragged them outside and you stoned them. Crucifixion takes place outside of a city, at the gates of this city, so that everyone that comes in realizes, don't mess with Rome or this is what's going to happen to you. Welcome to Jerusalem. And how do we know that that is the case? Because first of all, we know that there's a place where he is crucified and it's called Golgotha out of the city. It also tells us, by the way, something interesting about the guy who helps carry his cross. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it tells us that they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian. Do you know where Cyrene is? It's North Africa. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus and he was coming out of the place, the city, the country, and passing by, and they compelled him to bear the cross. This guy was leaving. He was, he was heading out. And because he was leaving the city, they said, well, since you're leaving the city, let's just get you to carry the cross. The point is, is that it had to happen outside of the city, and it happened just like that. So, must be a lamb. 
I get that. Must be in Jerusalem. Must be sinless. Must not remain overnight. And must be done outside the gates. Oh, but this one. You shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight. At the going down of the sun. So at the time you shall that you came out of Egypt. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Tony. I understand. You already said that he was crucified at noon. So how could this be? The term for what is, what is the term Erev? Erev, by the way, means to obscure or to cover. The idea is that the sun is covered. You ever wonder why, though Jesus was crucified at noon and died at 3 p.m., that God did something very unique on that day? Luke 23:44. Now at the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Why do you think God did that? God created his own special twilight to fulfill that it had to die when the sun was literally obscured. Erev. What's the word for obscure in the Greek? Skotos. And skotos is the word that is used in Luke 23:44, And it said the sky was darkened. God created his own twilight so that the lamb could be crucified. So, must be a lamb, must be in Jerusalem, must be sinless, must not remain overnight, must be outside the gates, must be at twilight, and then finally, and you shall roast it and eat it in the place in which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Interesting. The seventh day is the day they all get together. It's the day of rest, the Shabbat. At the end is rest. But there is an assembly during that day of rest. Interesting. John 20, verse 19 tells me that the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, which, by the way, then is Sunday, when the doors were shut about the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them. They had spent the whole weekend for fear of the Jews assembled together, and all they could do was rest. But I get it. Why it tells us in Hebrews 4, verse 10, that he who was entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did his. You see, the whole point of this, so that we could rest in him. The question is, did others believe that Jesus really was that Passover? Paul himself says this in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. What do you think? It seemed to me that those who knew him believed he was exactly that. The beautiful part about this is nobody else, and we're not even talking about the over 300 prophecies that speak about things like the way he would have to die, on the day that he would have to die, the way they gambled for his clothing, and those that gathered and wagged their mouths, and offering him the wrong drink, you know, offering him wine or, or gall, you know, offering him like the vinegar. All of those things prophesied his bones being out of joint, his heart melting like wax, his, thro- his throat becoming dry like a potsherd. All of those things that had been prophesied giving himself, as Isaiah 53 tells us, as a sacrifice for our sins, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces, we despise and esteem him not. Surely our sorrows he carried, and our griefs he bore, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Yet he was crushed 
for our iniquities, chastised for our sins, because actually, though our iniquity fell upon him, it's by his stripes we are healed. And people love to use that verse to say you should never be sick because by his stripes you are healed. But the whole context was we were going to hell. And it says, because we all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's the point. The point is, hey, would I, if, if I have a migraine, would I like it gone? Of course. If I have the flu, would I like it gone? Of course. But if I have to trade all of those things in and I have to die from that migraine, as long as my eternity is secure and I'm healed from eternal damnation, oh, Lord, hook me up. I mean, if I can get both, I'll take it. And here's the point. Is that that's for 1,400 years, God lines us up for his son to come. Behold the Lamb of God, the first thing that John the Baptist calls him. So we know that that's the Lamb. We know it has to happen in Jerusalem. We know it has to happen outside of the gates. We know that there has to be a sinless element, that there could be no sin laid upon that, no leaven whatsoever. It has to happen at twilight. And maybe the religious leaders thought, oh, crucify him at noon, at least we get away with that. But even after that, they take this body, and it tells us, by the way, that we would die among criminals, but be given a grave among the rich. Now, that's a weird thing, except that's exactly how it happened. Crucified by the left and in between two common thieves' murders, and yet Jesus is given into the hands of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who give him this beautiful, rich grave carved out of a... Do you think everybody gets a, a, a cave and a very small piece of property? Do you really think everybody gets a cave? Nobody had even been laid in this cave yet. And here's the point. God had been preparing us for that land to be sacrificed for our sins so that we could be set free from the hand of the enemy and set free from the land of bondage. All of that has to happen at the death of the firstborn and it has to happen at the sacrifice of the lamb. And God brought it all to the head and Jesus sits in a room with these guys and he starts to say, now listen guys, you already know what this bread is. You know this bread is the bread, the mechani. And you know that what this cup is, you guys know this stuff because for 1,400 years we've been doing this. But the focus of the Passover is not the bread. The focus of the Passover is not the cup. The focus of the Passover is the lamb. Because without the lamb, the supporting actors don't have anything to stand up for. But the lamb is there holding our bread. And the lamb is there holding this cup. And this is where we get to our point now for communion as we get around now to this point. It tells us this, beloved, that that bread, according to our verses here, is the bread of affliction. It is not to be leavened. And the reason is simple. Because God wants us to recognize that when we got out of slavery, it was so horrible, we didn't dally. God wants us to hate where we came from so bad that we don't look back and go, you know, can I still keep one foot there with Pharaoh in his destroyed property with all of his fallen gods and the frog smells and the death smells and the darkness and the lice? Oh, I miss the lice. It was leavenless, broken, and blessed. That was the point. And this is what Jesus says. As the symbol of our slavery. It's supposed to be dense, and the purpose of it being dense is that it's supposed to remind us that we were slaves. We were not free. We were slaves. We did what they told us, or we got beat. Do we remember that about where we came from? 
Or do we think, oh, the spices, how I miss them. It was so spicy back then. I don't know what it's like to have a warrant out after me anymore. I don't know what it's like for anyone to try to kill me anymore. I've been there. I don't know what it's like to to wonder whether someone's going to pop in the house with a gun. Whether the people that I associate with are going to hand me over. Whether I've gotten a disease. Oh, that's spicy. It's poison. And it's bondage. And no matter how many people I was with, still feeling empty and lonely and vacant. No matter what I'd gotten, it wasn't enough. No matter who applauded, it wasn't enough. No matter where I went, it wasn't enough. No matter how high I climbed, it wasn't enough. And I kept trying more and more. It's like I drank salt water and it made me thirstier. So I tried to, I just thought, maybe I'll drink more. How insane is that? And that bread's supposed to remind us that it was slavery. And that slavery needed to be broken. And so what Jesus does, he says, I will become the token of your slavery and I will be broken so that your slavery can be broken. And this is what he says. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to him. And then he said, this is my body which is given for you. When you do this, will you remember me? I think one of the greatest tragedies is we could do something like this and not remember him. Close our eyes, stick away from our mouth, walk away. Jesus is like, every time we come to this table, it is not the table of remembrance, though we remember him. It is the table of communion because it's where we commune with Christ. I say, Jesus, I get it. But this is the place where I remember that you chose to step in the way of my bondage and be broken so I could go free. In essence, it's my place there. In 1 Corinthians, as Paul is trying to reteach a church that had gone awry on this subject, in chapter 11, verse 24, it says, and when speaking of Jesus, when he had given thanks, he broke it. That's the bread. And he said, take this and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread we're going to take here in just a moment, and we're almost there, will be a bread that we say, yes, God. By eating of this, I proclaim that all of the bondage and emptiness had been laid upon you, and you chose to break it then. But there's also a cup. I've been doing a lot of thinking about that cup and praying through this because I realize, I mean, we, we go through the issue and, and I've, I've discovered that the cup is used in two situations. It's a cup of covenant. We're aware of that. And we know the one because it's the most commonly used and that's of engagement. But I've discovered that the cup is used in a second case as well. And this actually surprised me at first. The cup is used in adoption. When a child is brought into a family, And they offer him the cup to say, 
I'll provide. I'll take care of you. I'll provide. I'll protect. I'll take pleasure in you. And I get it. We don't normally use the term covenant. We almost think of it as a fancier term for promise. But I beg you to hear me for a moment as we're almost done. The difference between a covenant and a promise is a relationship. A promise doesn't require one. That's why they're so easily broken. You get a promise when you buy a car. You get a promise from the government. You get a promise from whomever, whatever. And you tend to think a promise. And and we almost already lean towards the fact that it's breakable the moment someone calls it a promise. But a covenant is a commitment to relationship. The covenant says the only way this can be broken is if our relationship is broken and I die. Isn't that what we think of when we think of a covenant? Is that death is what's supposed to separate us? Why? Because at that point we can no longer foster and develop a relationship. So marriage is a covenant. That's the point. It's not a promise. It demands the relationship. Family. We get into a covenant in our families because we commit to relationship. Or at least we should. Jesus didn't enter into a promise. Aren't you thankful? He entered into, he fulfilled promises. He entered into a covenant. And when he actually offers this cup, he says, take this and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. Luke 23, 20. It's the covenant in my blood because it's shed for you. In Matthew 26, 28, tells us the reason it's shed is for the forgiveness or remission of sins. And here's the point, beloved. That there is a choice to make. We partake of the bread, and what we say by partaking of the bread is, yes, Lord, I agree. You've paid my price. I willingly receive the fact that you've done that, and I claim your payment. I cash your check. You died on the cross to pay for my sins. I willingly say yes. The cup says, you know, this isn't just that you bought, you paid me out, you bailed me out of jail. You've done this for relationship. And drinking this cup says, I agree to the terms of the relationship that you offer. This is why, and this is our last text, 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is putting sanity back at the communion table, he says this starting in verse 23, and listen carefully and we'll close with prayer. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, because the lamb's the point, took bread. And when he had given thanks and broke it, he blessed it and broke it, and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it. Remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
But let each man examine himself. And then let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Because whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner brings judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Please hear me in this. What he doesn't say is, use this as a, as a way to disqualify you from coming to the table. What would be an unworthy manner? Well, it's simple. You're saying, all right, this is your terms for relationship. This is what you've done for me. I'll gladly take that, but I really don't want a relationship. I just want to not go to hell. That's spitting in the face of the one who died on the cross for us. He did that to be with us. Not to send us to heaven. He did it to be with us. And that's that important. So what I want to do is I want to do something different today. What I would like to do is I want to just take a moment and just play and sing. And as, as, as we do, I want you just to take the moment and do what he told us to do here. Examine yourself. Where's my walk with him? Where's my relationship with him? Not to say, well, I guess it's not so good, so I'm not going to come up to the table. But rather, this should be the most important thing. It is to you. And because it is, do what you need to do to make me right. And then while that happens, as the Lord so leads you, come on up and grab the elements. And though there are other times where we do the traditional blessings and we sing them in Hebrew and all that, and that's cool. Today I want you to take time and get alone with the Lord for a moment. Grab those things. And then just find a place. There's space here. Say, Lord, when we do this, let's do this together, you and me. I'm saying yes to this relationship all over again. I want it to be there where we stop. Because, man, if we do that for real today, a revolution starts in this room. A revolution. So let me ask you this as we pray. Have you said yes to that gift of Jesus? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus on the cross for you? Are you still trying to make terms as if he's Savior but not Lord? Today he deserves to be the Lord he calls himself. The Lord, your God. Mine too. So pray with me first, would you please? Lord, thank you. As we take this time, Lord, to just kind of get with you. As we take this time, Lord, just to open our hearts to you. Would you please, Lord, right now, get us right with you? Let this not be the time where we're like, well, I'm just not right, so... You know, I'm just going to get out. But rather, Lord, let it be a time where, where we willingly surrender to you. That's the purpose here is to say yes. And in doing that, God, please today start that revolution in our heart. We're clearly the Passover. We're clearly the lamb that was sacrificed. We read from the foundation of the world that had already been decided. All of this stuff was just leading us to it. But today, Lord, may this be the most beautiful communion ever because it'd be where we really genuinely do what you tell us, to commune with you. And Lord, if there be any in this room or within the sound of this voice who have not really accepted the gift of your Son, Father, the gift of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection, today, Lord, as they partake of these things, as they grab these things to say, Lord, by doing this, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, declaring his death on the cross for my payment, his resurrection for the new life that I have. 
Lord, show them that that's what this means so that every one of us today say yes to you all over again. We commit that to you. In Jesus' name, amen.